you gotta ask yourself from there is once you know what those things are, are you the person who has the right beliefs, mindsets, and skills and knowledge to get there? And you gotta be crystal clear yourself. You gotta be totally transparent. And you gotta step on that scale and see how much you weigh, otherwise you can't lose the weight. Only from there, once you have clarity to where you wanna go, where you currently stand, are you able to see the gap. And now once you see the gap, you can start fixing that gap step by step. But it starts with that and being open to that. And a lot of times, people wait for an event to occur before they make a shift. And sometimes those events are external. So for example, it could be, oh, I just got to put on a pip. <laughs> I, better, I better giddy up now. And they do it for a short period of time and then they, they peter off, right? Because now we're compliance-based. We're trying to conform. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Marcus Chan. Marcus is the president and founder of the Venley Consulting Group, and he's recognized by Salesforce as one of the top sales influencers to follow in 2021. And in our conversation today, we covered a lot of ground, beginning with how Marcus got a start in sales selling Speedo swimsuits, sort of like me starting my career selling women's shoes. We talk about our passion for sales coaching and dive into what we can all do to improve the coaching that is provided to individual contributors. Then we talk about how selling has changed in the past couple years, but then we turn our focus to talking about the near-term changes that we see that will occur over the next few years and what that means for all sellers. So all this and much, much more. Before we get to Marcus, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you could, we'd really appreciate it if you could also leave us a review and tell us how we're doing. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Marcus, welcome to the show. All right, Andy, I'm excited to be here. Excited to have you here. So um, you're where? You're in Portland? Portland, Oregon. You got it, man. That's exactly right. The new, we keep it weird here. We keep it weird the, here. Well, you're keeping it climatically weird there. Um, ah, yeah, so <laughs> Northwest has become like the new Death Valley from a weather perspective. Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, last week, I mean, we're just not used to it, right? We were running like 110 degrees. I mean, Fahrenheit. I mean, it's it's really hot for out here. And uh, because it <laughs> yeah. rains, like it rains like nine months out of the year usually here. And it's pretty, you know, it's not really that hot or that super cold. So a lot of people don't have AC out here. Now, I'm fortunate I, I have AC. I always, I need to have AC. I just, I run hot. But it's, uh, I, I was nice and cool. My house, climate controlled, but... I knew many people that were just suffering, you know, with their like 95 degree apartments and houses. I mean, I felt bad for oh, them. Oh, yeah. No, oh, I, yeah. I remember watching the Olympic track and field trials earlier this summer with, with oh, yeah. Eugene where the temperatures were oh. in triple digits. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's not oh, supposed yeah. to do that up there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I'm I'm from Eugene. So down there, a lot of people just typically don't even have AC. It's not really the thing they want to have. So I was like. Ooh, that's terrible. Good thing the hotels down there have AC, so it was totally fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think uh, I think I was thinking that during the Olympic track and field trials, I was thinking, gosh, yeah, if you were a HVAC person, a company oh, yeah. in Oregon and Washington these days, oh this yeah, this is probably pretty good. Oh yeah, they're <laughs> stacked me. for weeks. They're stacked for weeks. So, tell us a bit about you and what you do. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Marcus Shan, founder of Venley Consulting Group, and I help B2B sales professionals directly help them earn an additional fifty to $100,000 more in commissions every single year. 
and I do it through our sales training coaching programs. Now, before I did this business, because I've been running this business now for about 22 months now, it's been an incredible journey. Before this, I was in corporate America for over 14 years, started at the very bottom outside of B2B sales. I've actually only worked for two major Fortune 500 companies. And in that time, I was promoted 10 times in 10 years. It got to the point where I was leading a sales force over 110 plus employees over multiple states doing hundreds of millions in revenue. And that was a lot of fun before I made that leap in September 2019 to start my own business. So it's been yeah. a really fun journey uh, across the board from in corporate life to do my own thing. But uh, I'm excited to be here. So you're a swimmer. Yes. Yes. You're absolutely you right. Do you so, swim? Uh, no, Master it's been a while swimming? now. No. So it was funny as like, you know, it's funny because growing up, I was a competitive swimmer my whole life. And I, I loved, I actually, I was, I, I loved the competition aspect of like, you know, winning and stuff. I hate a practice because when you're in the <laughs> pool and you're like working out, like you, when you have 11 workouts a week, you just don't enjoy it. Like you really you get to the point, like especially when you're like in high school and stuff, you're like, I want to go see friends. I want to go out and stuff. So when I was about to graduate high school, going to college, because I, I was planning to swim collegiate. However, there's not very much money in swimming for scholarships. And I had to pay for school myself. So actually, mm -hmm. I, I made that choice to stop swimming at that point and just go to college and just do that. And I still actually swam in college in terms of, you know, just like to work out like every day for an hour just to stay in shape and whatever. Um, but then once once college is over, I pretty much, I just stopped. You know, I stopped. I just got distracted with life and my story, trying to figure out sales, my career, getting married, all those things. And But I still, like for a while, I picked it back up again and I was swimming again, not a lot, like maybe 1,500 meters a day just to stay in shape to supplement right. everything else I was doing. But I pretty much have stopped doing it consistently, especially after uh, once once everything shut down. I'm like, all right, I'm just <laughs> I'll do my other workouts now. It is what it is. Yeah, well, I've I've swum my entire life. You know, um, didn't do swim swam competitively a couple of years in high school, but just kept swimming and then really got into master swimming as an adult. And yeah, but yeah, the last two years uh, has not seen me in a pool. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Oh yeah, I mean, and, and even master swimming is a commitment, right? Um, you know, like yeah, uh, the team I was, it's it depends. It depends. It depends. Like I mean, yeah. well, at least the team I was on with the masters team that was part of it. I mean, we were because our team was super intense. I mean, we were like, we were fourteen years old. We were working out five and a half hours a day from the pool to dry land, multiple practices. We were doing ten thousand meters a day. So our masters team was not that tense, obviously, but no. they were still an hour and a half every morning. You know, for six sure. days a week, Saturdays were three hours. I mean, it was like, I mean, there were, there were some pretty good master swimmers out here because our team yeah. was a little bit intense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the teams I with, you had your choice. I mean, I yeah, I had periods where I was intense, where I was getting ready like, to swim at nationals. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. I love that. Get more intense than that. But um, yeah, other than that, I mean, nice thing about master swimming is yeah, no coaches are yelling at you. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, true. it's like true. I'm here because I want to be. Just shut up. Yeah, um, yeah. I got yelled at a lot, so I get that. Yeah. <laughs> so, but you you took your your interest in swimming into your professional career because you sold speedo swimsuits. It's true. your first job. That I mean, was, I, I started true. in women's shoes. You started selling yeah. swimsuits. That's great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was actually like a really nice transition because growing up, I, I worked my whole life growing up. My parents had a Chinese restaurant and they actually sold it right before uh, I started college. 
and I actually planned to work there to pay for college and just mm-hmm. do all that. So when they sold, I'm like, I have to get a job now. So back then, you know, like no one really posted jobs online. So I literally was like on classified ads and doing all these things. And I reached into my network because I was tight in the swimming network and found out there's a new swimsuit store opening up in town. And that's, I went to go work for them. And uh, it was, I was in charge, I had the retail sales piece, but I also would go to swim meets. So if you remember the swim meets, they have like, you know, Dude, some team people sales like, and so on. Yeah. Team sales. They would have people just like slinging gear and stuff. I was that guy slinging Speedos at swim meets <laughs> on weekends. So you, do you remember some of those swim meets? It was like, sure. Maybe, yeah, I was there like 15 hours a day on that deck slinging Speedos. <laughs> You know, with the old fashioned credit card swipe thing, you know, the oh, thing yeah, put, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, it was a lot of fun, man. It was, it was a lot of fun, a lot of fun. Hmm. That's did you think about becoming a swim coach? Because I did, I mean, I yeah, coached throughout high school and college, uh, during the summers and coached AAU teams and so on. And, and yeah, I went through this period. Yeah, I wasn't really sure as I was getting my senior year in college. I really was sure, was not sure what I wanted to do. And yeah, I was thinking seriously about uh, trying to become a swim coach. So I did. So um, I actually, I mean, kind of, I did like part-time. So I ended up, mm-hmm. you know, I did the high school coaching. I did that for a couple of years. That was really cool. Um, I also did club coaching as an assistant coach as well for like an age group as well. Yep. As additional, and that was like, that was um I loved it. Frankly, I loved it. I mean, it was one of those things where being able to have someone new come in or someone who is decent and just real be able to help them shift how to think and how to perform and how to mm-hmm. really improve and be a competitor and actually win and build confidence. That was like that was so powerful for me. And I really, really enjoyed it. And it was funny because before I got into sales, I'm like, maybe I'll be a swim coach. You know, maybe yeah. I don't know what I want to do. I was a sophomore when I was, when I was doing this in college and I was doing this on the side. I'm like, I really enjoy, I enjoy helping people. But the only thing was, uh, which I knew was always in the back of my mind was, I'm like, the income using wasn't very good. <laughs> so, well, not, not unless you ex- own your own swim program. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. As an assistant coach or whatever, I'm like, you really don't generate that much income. And, you know, I grew up so poor. I'm like, I really, I don't, I really don't want to, <laughs> you know, I really don't want to be a, a coach and make very little money and really struggle, you know? So I, I end up not doing that, but you know, I always said if, if at the time, if money wasn't a thing, I would have just done that. Yeah. Yeah. There's something appealing about it. Cause I, yeah, I love the coaching yeah. part and exactly. Just, I loved helping people improve. Yeah. Right. And these were kids I was doing age group coaching and, and, but yeah, I had, fortunate to have a couple swimmers that uh, they didn't become, you know, national champions or anything like that, but became, you know, nationally ranked at an age group level and purely through their own, you know, account of taking, taking accountability for their own performance as young people and putting in the work. It was, uh, as you said, it was very inspiring. So I thought, yeah, perhaps do that. But uh, yeah, even though my master's program, I always loved it when the coaches had we gone because I always got to step in and coach, and I, <laughs> I was like, God, I love this. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's, uh, it's very interesting. I mean, I, I think to even, um, you know, when I was you know thirteen, fourteen, I was kind of like in that in that pivotal moment of you know mental development, and I remember like you know I just didn't take it seriously, and I remember I, I still remember like the the shifts that my coach did to me to really shift me from being just like 
an okay swimmer to becoming a really good swimmer, but also just some of the mental stuff and the commitment and some of these things that you hold mm-hmm. so valuable down the road. I'm like, wow, he really, I mean, he really helped shape a lot of core values and beliefs I have today that started, you know, a couple decades ago. Uh, and I always well, yeah. appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. In my case, it was much longer ago than that. But but yeah, yeah I, I still <laughs> remember one thing for it. So I sort of shifted from swimming to running in high school. So yeah. cross country and track. And I remember my cross country coach, we we're in the middle of a workout and he apparently thought we had a pretty good team. And this is back in Wisconsin. We were one of the better teams in the state at the time. And, and he thought we were underperforming in workout one day and he sort of sat us down. And I just always remember him saying, he says, yeah. And I said, subsequently I've read this. So I know he didn't originate it, but it, it just stuck with me. I can hear him saying, it's like, you know, while you're goofing around, what do you think your competitors are doing? <laughs> right. Right. Oh, right. Yeah. That's like, oh yeah, that, yeah. So I, and I still think about that today, even in, it's, yeah, it's in sales, when you're competitive situations, it's like, yeah, you know, I don't have to make that extra call or, you know, I don't, you know, maybe I could slack off a little bit. Not that I do, but I mean, you can, you know, your inner voice is saying, you know, you have to go that extra mile on this proposal or, you know, think harder about what we could do, totally. be creative in the situation. It's like, yeah, if I don't, I know my competitor is. And so I oh, always yeah. played it the other way, which is I'm going to do this because I know my competitor is taking it easy. That's right. I mean, it's interesting because um, I remember my coach would say similar things or like he'd pull like random quotes from other people that I, th- I actually at the time I thought were his quotes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yes. as you get a little older, you're like, wait a minute, that's Vince Lombardi, <laughs> you know. But I mean, I, I remember like one specific one he used to say because, you know, you know, as kids, you kind you try to just kind of skate by doing your thing. I remember one of the things where it's it can definitely be misunderstood, but he said, "Hey, ninety nine percent right is a hundred percent wrong." Right? It's like perfect practice leads to perfection. Right? So, right. and it wasn't about like everything's got to be perfect, but it's really about the focus and that the intensity of just doing your best and doing your best to make it as good as possible, and not being okay with mediocrity. That was really the message he was trying to mm-hmm. say there. And as you know, in swimming, I mean, it's a it's a game of like millimeters, right? From how you position yeah, yourself to how right. you stroke to milliseconds. I mean, milliseconds. It's like it's 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 micro amounts of shifting that leads to a great result. And that was really his intentionality. And it's funny because I think about that from a sales perspective. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. It's a micro shift that you do in your sales process that actually leads to macro results. But oftentimes. Everyone looks for like a macro change when the truth is a lot of times there's this tiny shifts here and there that actually lead to better results that you're actually looking for. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. I mean, so two things on that. One is I want to say two things at once, which is always works out badly is, <laughs> is yeah. I, I ask, like to ask sellers. So tell me how much did you win your last deal by? One percent? Were you two percent better? Five percent better? And the thing is, unlike in swimming and track and field and so on, is you can't quantify how much better yeah. you are, it, right? It, in order to win the deal, yeah. I mean, the customers make a decision. It's like, yeah, they may have a spread chart. Maybe you're cheaper by a certain percentage, mm-hmm. but it's not always about price, right? Right. So it gets back to the side you were talking about. Is is at least in my mind, it's always been, and I stress to people I coach is that. Every little thing matters because yes. you have to presume that the margin of victory is only 1% between you and everybody else. 
That's it. That's exactly so what are the things it. you're doing? The attention to detail you're you're putting in, the creativity you're exerting, the analysis mm-hmm. you're exerting. That is that extra one percent. Right. That's right. You know, it's one of those things where you know I think Gary Vee said he said for years now. You know, Gary Vaynerchuk. He said mm-hmm. the best sales or marketing strategy is caring, and it's so true. When you're mm-hmm. applying that intentionality of care to every part of your process, you are much more intentional from everything you do from how you speak on the phone to how you write your emails to how you prepare proposals to how you run the sales calls to how you follow up. And all those details really matter. Even though they may not seem that way up front, but they truly do because it all caters towards that experience that potential customer is feeling with you and your company. Exactly. And it is predominantly about the customer experience that drives 100%. the decision, the That's buying right. experience with you as an individual seller. Absolutely right. Yeah, I love the, uh, this is, I don't know, maybe 10 plus years ago. Uh, I don't know if anybody's a bicycle fan like I am, but Tour de France fan. And and the dominant team for a long time was this Team Sky, and now called Ineos, in the dominant team in the Tour de France. And, <clears throat> and their manager, guy named Dave Brailsford, you had this theory or philosophy followed called the aggregation of marginal gains. Mm, And so they looked at every little, there was no aspect of a person riding a bike that they didn't examine and say, what can we do to make this part better? Right. From the position on the bike, the bike, you know, the bicycles, the riders would spend hours in a wind tunnel, right. Looking at the, their form on the bike, they would, the shape of the materials on the, or the, not the shape, but the, well, the shape somewhat is, you know, even though the seaming they used in stitching their garments together to try to reduce, you know, wind flow over the, the garment, uh, you know, to helmets, everything, nutrition, sleep, mm-hmm. there wasn't anything they didn't look at. And you have to take that same approach in sales because right. you don't know what's going to make a difference. It's, it's, it's absolutely right. And it's one of those things where I can't remember which, um, was it Vince Lombardi? I can't remember who, which, uh, or maybe it was John Wood, and I can't remember who it was. Um, it was it, what he discussed was, and, and there's one of the books I read, It's they talk about how initially when the season starts, one of the first things that coach would do was teach them how to tie their shoes. John Wood. John Wood. It, it was John Wood. Yeah, yeah. It was John Wood. Okay, so that's exactly it. And A failure it, it's to prepare okay. is preparing to fail. Yes. Right. It's exactly right. Where it's like, it's those little details where, like, yeah, it, the, the players would laugh. It's, oh, that's so stupid. We all know how to tie our shoe, whatever. But reality is, is if you improperly tie it, you're going to lose focus. You're going to lose footing. You're going to get distracted. It's going to impact everything else that you do. And it mm-hmm. all starts with that initial baseline. And I think about a sales process, the same thing. It's really across sports, life, everything. When you understand those, micro moments is what makes the money you know it's what makes that magic happen you pay attention to the micro moments like this like russell wilson says the separation is in the preparation it's those little details yes yeah, so how do we how do we inculcate that that mindset into sellers i think you know it comes from managers i think has to start there but but this thing is really important is is because one thing that's frustrating to me is when i'm working with sales teams it's just this I'll call it a slackness, right? I mean, it's yeah. it's not paying attention to the details, not understanding yeah. that the details are important. Um, just following the process instead of, uh, to your point earlier, being very intentional about every moment. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, what I believe is it starts with first their belief. And they have to have a belief that they are not a product of their circumstances. And a lot of times, when, you know, especially when you talk to, uh, let's call it the average rep, right? The average rep, oftentimes, if they have, are not performing to a level they expect of themselves or what the company expects of them, they usually will try to find external reasons on why they're not able to hit their goals or get to where they want to go. And you'll hear all types of things from, hey, we don't have the right tech stack. We have bad product market fit. I have a bad mm-hmm. leader. I have all these X, Y, Z reasons. And yeah, for sure, sometimes those might be very valid reasons that can impact it. But at the end of the day, it's having that belief that you can control what you can control. And you right. can't control those things, but you can control how you show up, how you prepare, and how you interpret those events to get the desired result you want. Because if you don't, your competition will, or someone else on your team will, and they'll get a better result than you. So I think it starts with first is just that ownership and belief that you are 100% accountability for your uh, accountable to your results, but also to your own failures and mistakes. And it starts with that there. Because if you can't overcome that first, if you can't, if you do not have that, that pure belief about that pure conviction, it's very hard to do anything else. Everything else becomes about compliance versus commitment. Yeah, or conformity versus commitment. Correct. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. And it, but my, my belief is that increasingly these days in sales is given the way we see it structured so often, it's, it's become much more compliance oriented. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's a problem for a lot of sellers because it's conformity is not the path to success. It's, it's no. as you just described, it's, it's, you know, we got to pay attention to details. We got to, I like to say, you know, if there's 5 million salespeople, let's say in the United States, B2B sellers, there's 5 million different methods for selling. Mm-hmm. And, the goal really becomes for the individual is how do I find the one that works best for me? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think there's like, uh, it it depends if you, if you're a leader listening to this, um, there are things you can do as a leader, right? Like number one, you hire people who are intrinsically motivated versus just only extrinsic, right? right? Having the right skill sets, et cetera, that are coachable and that can really, really help. But as an individual, it starts off with just having clarity to yourself having pure clarity to yourself, who you are, what drives you, and why you do what you do. Because if you lack clarity to those things, you are very unlikely to want to go towards something better. So for example, mm-hmm. it, it, let's let's just say maybe you're always middle of the pack, and maybe you're the average rep where every 12 to 18 months, you just get a new sales job. And you're like, this is just normal. This is what life should be about. Like every 12, 18, I just get a new job. It's totally fine. Maybe this is better to base. Maybe this is better, whatever. I, I hit my number some months. I miss it some other months. It is what it is. And you kind of float. Well, that's leading a, a very unintentional life. Like if there's a line, this is unintentional living. And there's intentional mm-hmm. living, right? Yeah. Most people live unintentionally. So it starts with first having clarity to, hey, where do you want to go and who do you want to become? Like, if you had to write out 10 years from today, what are the desired results you want to have achieved? And that could be anything from wealth, status, relationships, every part of your life. And what you got to ask yourself from there is once you know what those things are, 
Are you the person who has the right beliefs, mindsets, and skills and knowledge to get there? And you got to be crystal clear to yourself. You got to be totally transparent. And you got to step on that scale and see how much you weigh. Otherwise, you can't lose the weight. Only from there, once you have clarity to where you want to go and where you currently stand, are you able to see the gap? And now once you see the gap, you can start fixing that gap step by step. But it starts with that and being open to that. And a lot of times, people, people wait for an event to occur before they make a shift. And sometimes those events are external. Mm-hmm. So for example, it could be, oh, I just got to put on a pip. <laughs> I better, I better yeah, giddy up now. Right. Right. And they do it for a short period of time and then they, they peter off. Right. Because now we're compliance-based. We're trying to conform. And we're not able to tap into discretionary effort because discretionary effort is where you are not just doing the bare minimum, you're doing far beyond that and more because you have something bigger that you're working towards. But you can't have that unless you know who you are and where you want to go. So that starts with that clarity first, right? Ideally, it's not external, it's internal. And sometimes you do need some external to spark it, but then from there, you got to use it as an opportunity to realize where could you really be? And then once you uncover that, then you find a way to start working towards it. And that's, and that's, that's even from a leadership perspective, that's key too. The mistake many leaders make is, hey, reps not performing. Let me just hammer them on activity. Well, here's reality. If they, if they sound terrible on the phone, if they write terrible emails, hammering on activity only scales crap, mm-hmm. right? If it's crappy, it's going to only scale crap. You're not getting the results you want. So it's really the key is being able to understand what's really on where they really stand and where they want to go and making sure you're helping them get there. And it's really shifting from that conformity to actually truly being committed to who they want to become. But it starts with clarity. If you don't, if you have zero clarity, you can't get there. Yeah, I mean, you raised such a good point about <laughs> about if you're a manager and you see you have somebody underperforming and, and you just hammer them, you know, you're yeah. just going to propagate crap wider. But that's a, that's a leap that, Unfortunately, too few managers realize, and you can yeah. see it. Just, gosh, yeah, I spend time on LinkedIn and listen to and watch what, or excuse me, not listen, but read what what managers are writing about. Is, is yeah, you can tell most of them don't get it. Is that, yeah, the first fix isn't to do more. First fix is to do better. Yeah, oh, and yeah. oh yeah, and across the board. Um, yeah, somebody always says, you know, I always want to sell more. I said, well, before you can sell more, you have to learn how to sell better. Correct. Then you can sell more better. Um, you got to know why you want to sell better has more. to come first. Yeah, and you have to know why. You know, like... Oh, well, you, it, it's just not why. I think it's it's also... I might agree on all those things, but it's it's not just clarity about that. I think, in my mind, and this is a huge issue for me personally, as I look out onto the sales world and talk to people and you know, people interact with me online and so on is, is they really don't understand what selling is about. Correct. Yeah. We've, we've, you know, created this legion of sellers that, mm-hmm. you know, think it's about convincing somebody to buy something. Right. And I don't think that's what sales is about at all. And I think that if that's what your mindset is, then that's what you think you're not your why, but the, what <laughs> you're supposed to be doing is, then that's really problematic. And that's why we get a lot of the sort of the bad sales behavior that we get because they're taught, go out and find a prospect and convince them to buy our product. As opposed mm-hmm. to, why don't we really listen to understand what's the most important thing to this person and then figure out a way to help them get that. That's right. You're, you're absolutely that's sales. right. 
right? Yeah, I 100% agree because ultimately, when you really master selling, you are serving at the highest possible level. You are really uncovering what's important to that person and making sure it aligns to how you can really help them your solution. It's not about convincing. It's not about hard closing. It's not about the best closing technique. It's not about those type of things. It's really... It's being able to understand where where they are and meeting them where they are and helping them get there only if you can truly help them. It's not about convincing. Well, I, yeah. Right. And I and I think one of the big problems again is is you know, not that everything's problematic, but when we're talking about this, you know, on a broader scale, is is again the way we we train sellers is yes. we say, okay, now we're gonna send you out to do a discovery call or what have you. Um so they're not focused on really understanding the buyer. We're focused it's on true. gathering information. It's true. And so, again, as I mentioned before, if, if our job is to listen to really understand this most, what's the most important thing for the buyer? It's not about going out and asking your scripted questions or your questions that are in your playbook or the questions you've grown accustomed to answer or to ask, excuse me. It's the other questions, right? Getting to really a level of understanding. And I, this is, I see this big gap most sellers have is between knowing something and understanding it. That's right. And until you can cross that gap, it's hard. It's hard to move the customer forward because you don't really understand what's driving them. hundred percent. Right. I mean, I think it, it's, it's really at the end of the day, it's, it's no different than the, the relationships that we have, you know, with our spouse and whomever, like if you think about it, like I've had my wife get mad at me and, and Mistake shocking. I made. I know that's a shocker. And <laughs> yeah, early on, it's like, <laughs> the, the mistake that we you know, I made. I know I personally made is they're mad. They, they say they're mad about something, or I assume it, and I'm taking it for what what they're saying, yep. and I'm and it's totally wrong. And yep. why I learned obviously is there's it's like a layers of an onion. Like that first layer, they might just say mm-hmm. it's this, but it's really when you start peeling back the layers, you're asking deeper, deeper questions, and truly digging to uncover what's a root. Not what's the symptom, what's the real root behind this whole situation? Am I able to truly understand it? And when I have clarity, then I can actually truly help it. And I think it's a lot like it's as if we're driving down the road and my windshield is dirty. So I gotta clean my windshield off, right? Now if I don't clean my windshield off, I keep keep driving down the road. If I kind of clean a little bit, but it's just smeared everywhere, I'm probably gonna hit something. And in the situation here, it means I'm not gonna get to where I want to go and I'll probably get an accident meaning I won't close the deal. That's just that's what's gonna happen. However, if I really seek to understand, like Stephen Covey says, seek to understand, right? And I dig in deep, I clear the windshield completely crystal clear, and I can see exactly where I need to go. Now it's much easier to get to my destination because now I know exactly where they are at and what things to avoid and how best to truly serve them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, I, I, I I had a quote that just escaped my head about about understanding, but yeah, Covey is, is certainly one of them. But it's that I guess I was thinking the story also a story about listening to some call recordings as this was in this particular instance a few years ago. And I was listening to a number from this one company and a client company, and listening to the seller. And these were AEs going through a discovery call, and they'd ask the question, and the buyer would give an answer. And they'd say, oh, okay. And then you could hear them, you know, typing down the, check the response. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> yeah, or check mark. Yeah. 
And there'd be a little pause while they did that. And then they'd go to the next question. And you could tell it's the next question on a list because there wasn't a follow-up to the question they had just asked. Yeah. It had nothing to do with the content of what the, the buyer had just told them. Right. And I found myself there about three of them sort of starting to yell at the recordings. Cause it's like, they're inviting you to come and kick down the door and explore mm-hmm. more. Right. And get into greater depth about this. And you're not taking the bait. And it shouldn't be a matter of taking the bait. You should have this mindset that, look, I'm going to ask questions. Do I make sure I understand what they're talking about? And you can never ask my experience when you can never ask a buyer too many questions. I've never, in my experience over decades, I've never had a buyer say enough with the questions already. If I'm coming across as sincere, which I am and sincerely interested in understanding what the problem is, what the outcomes they want to achieve. Yeah. Make sure I really understand it. I'll get all the time I need. Oh yeah. I mean, and sometimes they'll, they'll be thanking you. They'll be like, wow. Like basically they're telling you the competition didn't do this, but you, you mm-hmm. did like, you are really like, I feel, I, I feel understood. And it's always a good sign when after you did a really good discovery, like, like the one you just mentioned, they say something like, I feel like I, I'm sorry I've been talking so much. <laughs> I feel like you're my therapist. <laughs> um, how, well, what do you have to show just, me? There's a, there's a similarity, though. <laughs> right. right. I mean, there is, a, I don't know, for those of you who have done talk therapy before, as I have, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, there's a similarity, mm-hmm. right? You're, you're not there to tell the buyer the answers. You're there to help the buyer figure the answer out. That's right. That's, that's how you're influencing them. And you do 100%. that oftentimes through your questions. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And, and ultimately, and this is where I find it so powerful, especially for someone who maybe, whether they're newer in sales or maybe they changed a new industry or whatever, when you when you are able to ask good questions, then you really go deep, right? So you maybe go an inch wide, a mile deep on these questions and you truly seek to understand, it positions you as more of an expert in authority. They trust you more because they could see, they could tell you're being authentic, you're being real, you truly want to help, and you're seeking to understand. You're not just asking arbitrary questions to ask arbitrary questions. You are truly seeking to understand what is going on. And that's incredibly powerful. And I think that this, this, when you think about for really, you know, any professional situation, like say even the doctor, people say the discovery is like being, going to the doctor. It's true. But when you really think about the, even the whole process before you go to the doctor, it's all tied to questions. From when you you get a new doctor, they make you fill out a questionnaire. You you fill out the questionnaire first, online or physical. Then you mm-hmm. go have the appointment. First, the nurse comes in, asks you a bunch of questions, right? And then the doctor comes in and asks you even more questions. And then they give you the prescription. They recommend us, you know, whatever surgery or whatever needs to be done to actually solve your issue. But you feel you feel heard. And you also know when they don't do a good job with that, you're questioning their solution. <laughs> you're like, I don't know if I want that surgery or prescription. <laughs> Are you just trying to sell me something here? Like, you know, you feel it. But when you feel heard that you actually can get a problem solved, you're like, okay, cool. Take my money. Take my money today. What do I need? Book appointment. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I, I, I was just laughing at the doctor example because my wife – teaches medical school and they have a, uh, a lesson they teach about, you know, the actual practice of medicine itself. And, but I remember one of the modules, at least when uh, her daughter was going through 
med school was, was uh, that when doctors go into the examining room, they have, I think the number is like 24 sort of unconscious biases they have to filter through right. in order to really hear for them to really understand what the patient is saying. That's right. Right? I mean, age, gender, race, nationality, you know, we mm-hmm. go through this list, how they dress, what they do for a living, all these things, the information they gather when they look at it, yeah, sort of triggers biases. And I think, you know, this happens also with sellers as you have certain inherent biases, many of them the same that doctors have when they see a patient that also make it harder for you to understand. I mean, part of it is, look, you've got this image of this persona in your mind, um, that shapes sort of what you're hearing and how you're hearing it, as opposed to saying, okay, I understand it's a useful framework to have a persona, but this is an actual person I'm t- selling to. Correct. There's something more here and I need to dig down and get it. Yeah. And this is where um, this ties back into your earlier point about the importance to the detail and preparation. So, like, if, for example, like one of the bias could be if your emails you're writing are just terrible, like terrible grammar, or solely everything's spelled wrong or whatever. <laughs> Well, they're going to perceive that's a bias you're going to have before you walk in, right? If it's on the well, Zoom call, if they talk to right? you, if they talk to you, <laughs> yeah, right? If, if they if they if you actually book the meeting, now you're on a, say a Zoom call, and like your background's just a hot mess around you, <laughs> you know, you got dirty laundry everywhere, dirty <laughs> dishes, whatever. You look like you just like you know you haven't like had a, had a shower in days. Well, they're going to smell you through the Zoom and be like, there's another bias right there. So it's like you have these things that are stacking against you and you've already lost the opportunity before you had a chance to even open your mouth. Mm-hmm. Oh, this, yeah, this happens whether it's virtual or in person. Absolutely. Totally. totally. Yeah, I mean, people are people <laughs> yeah. making judgments. And, and oh, yeah. I wrote about this in my second book is, is this, the power of perceptions. Is, so science has found that you know people make up their minds about other people within like, 250 milliseconds of meeting them. Yeah. That's the time it takes you to blink your eye. It's a quarter of a second. Oh, yeah. And think about that, right? To your point, flip on a Zoom call. (laughs) You got laundry hanging up in the background, (laughs) whatever. Uh, Yeah, that perception's made. And what what the research shows is that perceptions are sticky. So once someone's formed a perception of you, even if you give them evidence to the contrary, even even if they on their own come across evidence that contradicts their perception. It's very hard for people to change that perception. Oh yeah. You know, I remember early on um, when I was selling, so we were, we, we were required to wear full suits, shirt and tie. It's oh, all yeah. face to face. Right. So um, I remember going to this appointment and this is like a small auto shop, you know, like, you know, mechanic mm. who started his own business, right? They're wearing like dirty uniforms, or whatever. Like, oh, yeah. And I'm walking with a suit. And I remember just, like, you know, walking with just a lot of swag or whatever. And they see this guy wearing the suit coming in. They're already like just kind of turned off, right? So, yep. being, even though that was basically our requirement to wear, I learned pretty quickly, I had to basically diffuse it immediately. Like, make some sort of like stupid joke with how they were so lucky to get to wear what they wanted, how to wear a monkey suit to hopefully diffuse it as fast as possible. And I remember, and it's always like a little, sometimes it's, it's the little things, right? I remember um, when I started having some success and I really like timepieces and watches. I remember I bought my first decent watch that I liked and it was like, this, it was this huge thing. I mean, it was like massive watch and it was like, the metal was like, I like chrome. I mean, it was, it was so, so, so like flashy. And I remember like early on, I made the mistake, like I diffused the situation with, with like, you know, 
you know, that I was wearing a suit. And I'm wearing this brand new watch I'm very excited about. And I'm meeting with the ex- he actually happened to be in auto shop as well. Mm-hmm. And I'm going through the meeting, and you know, we, we, it's, it's, it feels like it's pretty good. But I can tell you the guy's just a little bit standoffish, right? And you know, I remember at the very end, we're, we're planning out a next step, right? Which, by the way, I did not close this deal. And he, and he he's he just makes like an offhand comment. We're kind of just having the normal kind of BS before we kind of end the end the end the meeting face to face. And he just looks at me. He's like, look, he looks down my watch. Like, it's uh, he says, that's a pretty uh, pretty nice watch, sir. Must be doing uh, pretty well, huh? And uh, I remember like I like just turned bright red. I just got super flustered. I'm like, what, what, what? Sh- what, what do I say next? And I tried to like kind of laugh at, oh, it's just, you know, it's just, it was a, it was a gift or something. I can't even remember why I said in the moment, right? And I was so flustered. I remember, remember leaving, but I remember just seeing his face and just really realizing that he had created that perception about me that mm-hmm. he didn't say anything about it until the very end. He kept it through the whole thing. And he just probably perceived me that he, this guy probably is just a slimy sales guy who just like sells these deals, oversells it and whatever. He gets he gets a commission, buys nice things, and, mm-hmm. and he's out. And I'm like, I fell right into that perception. And, uh, and I remember after that, I returned that watch. Like I was like, I'm done. <laughs> like I got well, a real basic watch because like, I still like to have watches. Like a real basic <laughs> non-flashy watch. And I'm like, oh boy. But it's, it's, but it's true. You're 100% yeah. right. They stick with you through the whole thing. Well, I mean, that was always a boss's fear. Is, is um, so when I started my first sales job, I was driving a 15, 16 year old car. <clears throat> now, in those days, again, back in the dark ages of selling, is <laughs> bosses wanted you to show your commitment to the job by buying a new car. Yeah. So that was sort of the thing is, you know, yeah, get your paycheck or expect you to buy a new car. And so, uh, I'm a little contrary about some things. And so there's no way I was selling that car, but I used to just drive my boss nuts when he'd like do ride alongs with me. <laughs> he said, can we drive my car? I said, no, no, I'll, I'll take my, well, and pull up in front of a customer's office. <laughs> this, that car was in very nice shape. Uh, I'd inherited it from a great aunt who had only driven it to church on Sundays, but, um, it stuck out like a sore thumb. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It became a conversation starter, actually, because I actually one of my major client bases were auto dealers at that time, so mm-hmm. um, they all got a kick out of it. But yeah, yeah my boss was absolutely petrified that I was com- creating a bad perception in the minds of uh, potential buyers driving up in that thing. And it it varies, right? Because every industry is like a little bit different in what they see, right? Like depending on who you're selling to, the market. Sometimes they want to see something super nice, and when they don't want to see, it's like. But again, it's really understand where the customer is coming from mm-hmm. and doing your best to meet meet them where they're at. Otherwise, it's not good. Like, for example, I had I had a rep who was very flashy. And we and you know, in, the, in this role, we sold all types of businesses. Like, we were about to meet with a 7-Eleven convenience store owner. I mean, mm-hmm. the guy is making 12 cents off a pack of cigarettes and rolling up in a brand new Range Rover on 24s. A little bit flashy and mm-hmm. uh, definitely not what they want to see, right? Like. No. I'm like, all right, we're gonna need to park like, dude, we need to park like a mile away and walk. <laughs> like, there, there is no way we are parking in the front of a 7-Eleven and walking out like this. <laughs> You've been successful, so, but not with this car. <laughs> so, as I told you, my boss really hated this car, and so <laughs> I did end up buying a, a new car from one of my auto dealer clients. But just to, sort of. 
<laughs> irritate my boss. I sold my car to another guy in the office. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's he, awesome. he wasn't happy to me. Wasn't happy with oh. me at all. So whatever, whatever. Yeah, I had a, a, not a dissimilar story after years with, with actually it was my first order. I got professional sales and working with this company, Burroughs, and we were selling desktop adding machines. We had to sell a certain amount of these at the time, antiquated. They were even at the time were antiquated desktop adding machines before they would send us to training to learn how to sell big computers. So <laughs> going into business parks, parking my car, going door to door to door, um, with one of these things about the size of a small microwave under my arm, and my flip chart <laughs> portfolio in the other. Yeah. These were these were the days. But I remember going into tail end of a long week and I'd I don't know, I think it was like the end of my second week after our first training and I still hadn't gotten an order yet. And I was in my three-piece dark suit, uh, you know, red maroon power tie, uh, went into a welding shop. Was, I remember the name, it was, <laughs> yeah. Buck, it was Buck's Welding. And yeah. the inside of this place was like one room. It was like they had an auto lift in there as well. And the thing was just black with soot. I mean, it was like oh, yeah. walking into dark. And oh, yeah. it was Buck, who was working there all day long, he was, you know, like those pictures you see of coal miners that are completely covered. Oh, head yeah. to f- that was him as well. And he was the nicest guy. He wanted, and I, I told him I wanted, and I, I almost didn't go in because I looked at this place and I thought, there's no way. This is a fairly expensive piece of equipment. I mean, it was, you know, today's dollars, probably $1,000 um, for basically, a, you know, adding machine functionality. I said, there's no way. But I said, I should go. I should do it. I'm here, right? So I went in and I said, nicest guy ever. Uh, Stood there next to me, completely soot covered. I'm in his office in my three-piece suit. And I give him a little demonstration of this desktop adding machine. It's got some other features. And yeah, he bought it. (laughs) I'm thinking, maybe this is a pity sale afterwards. But Whatever, right? But it's just if I had given into my perception of biases, I wouldn't have gone in the door. I would have turned around and walked back out. But uh, I never forgot Buck. That was my first order. I love that. And I mean, this is such a great example of the, that, that reverse bias that we that we can have as salespeople thinking, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. oh yeah. based off the perception of this person, this small, tiny building, it's covered in like dirt and soot and welding grime and everything. Like they probably don't have any money. Well, the truth is, he's probably got a pretty successful business. He's probably doing a couple mil a year welding and doing all these things. He actually Very possibly. Probably, probably just does quite well for himself. He just, his job is dirty. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's right. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you think about that. That's absolutely true, especially as younger salespeople. Yeah, you, you make all these assumptions about people so that yeah, they can't possibly afford this or do that. Uh, and yeah, just make the call. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's removing some of those. And that's I think that's limiting half, beliefs. Half the, yeah. Well, yeah, and I think it's half the fun of sales is oh, as yeah. if not more than half has been being in unexpected situations, talking to unexpected people that are interesting and have fun life stories, and it's part of what makes the job enriching. Oh, because sometimes even what looks to be the most qualified on paper or on the laptop is actually not a good prospect at all. <laughs> you know, yeah, that happens. Happens a lot. I mean, it's yeah. it's it's timing, right? So often, and this is one of the things people don't want to acknowledge enough about 
sales because I always want to think when customer says, oh, it's not the right time for us. It's, I'm going to soldier on. I'm going to power through this quote unquote objection. Well, it's not really objection. It's just not the right time. So go find somebody that is the right time for it. That's it. That's exactly I mean, it. Easiest way to do it and then come back to them. They'll appreciate it if you didn't uh, try to shove it down their throat the first time. All right, Marcus, it's been a pleasure. Hey, it's been a lot of fun. I, I didn't know we jammed about swimming today. I'm like swimming, you know, uh, well, back in the day selling, carrying adding machines. I love it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I said that was, uh, that was, we used to call that heavy metal selling because it was, uh, <laughs> we were selling a lot of metal. And it was very, oh, heavy. yeah. <laughs> I love it. I mean, literally the size of a small microwave oven and one arm. Oh, yeah. And like I said, my flip chart portfolio and the other, which, God, I hated those things. And um, yeah, I soon learned how to get rid of those. And yeah, we were selling these things that at the time, let's say were 250 to $500, depending on what features you're getting. You could buy a $70 handheld calculator that would do the same things. But we had to sell $5,000 worth of those desktop adding machines before they would enroll us in computer training. And so that was sort of the weeding out process, if you will, for, because the company hired, like every big tech companies hired tons of people and the mm-hmm. sort of express intent of uh, letting a, wa- a lot of them wash out. And <laughs> it, it wasn't easy. I mean, as a first job, it was fantastic because I was you know, face-to-face with dozens of people oh, yeah. every day. High and, velocity, high activity. Oh yeah, by foot. Probably had to yeah. wear rubber soles versus wooden soles because you wear it through the bottom. Oh yeah, I I don't even know what I could afford then. So um, <laughs> all I know is yeah, I went some discount place to. It was a milestone for me in my career to be able to afford a suit at Nordstrom's. Right, that that was oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I didn't have to buy at the discount store more anymore, and could go buy a, a nice suit at Nordstrom's. That means uh, yeah, it finally started doing well. So, all right, Marcus, if people want to learn more about you and connect with you, what's the best way to do that? Awesome. So a couple of different really super easy ways. Number one, connect with me on LinkedIn. It's Marcus Chan. It's the only guy with actually Speedos in the tagline because I did sell Speedos <laughs> at one point, which we discussed. Uh, or you had, had my website as well, which is just uh, sixfiguresalesacademy.com. Will you type out six or you write out the, the number six? Both will redirect to the same place, sixfiguresalesacademy.com. There's free training, free resources there as well to help you sell and earn more. Excellent. Marcus, thank you so much. My absolute pleasure. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Marcus Chan, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or every listen to podcasts. You can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help. And as always, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.